Hey everybody, welcome to the Outer Circle and the Inner Stillness. This is Reese, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm really excited today to share a conversation that I had with Christian Gonzalez. He's a counselor colleague and an Orthodox friend, and we uh, we met and we were chatting and we discovered we both really love the Enneagram and uh, were really taken by the internal family systems counseling model. and decided to explore how are they similar, how are they alike, when are they talking about the same things, and most importantly, how do we as Orthodox Christians use these concepts in a spiritual practice, in a recovery practice, and in overall grow, growing in health. So at the time of recording, um, we were a little bit newer in encountering uh, internal family systems, and uh, both of us, I think, had um, been exposed to the Enneagram at a little bit more of, a, of an interest level, kind of a novelty hobby level. So um, please don't take what we say here as strictly counseling advice. Uh, I will say delightfully, since the, t since the recording of this conversation, uh, I personally have had opportunity to do more intentional training with uh, the internal family systems model, uh, taking official training through the Internal Family Systems Counseling Association and have begun official training through the IFS Institute here in America and am planning to pursue certification and and I'm under supervision for this model as well. But, um, but yeah, so at, at the level that this conversation happens, it's very much saying, hey, here's these really cool ideas that we've seen, we've known a little bit about Here's some ideas about how they might be applied to developing, um, developing your inner world, developing a practice for reflection, and hopefully as a tool to augment the spiritual life as well. Also, my apologies. This one was recorded back in the early days of my podcasting career when I had not yet learned all that I know now about good sound quality. So forgive the sound quality. It will get better. So take that for what it's worth, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Outer Circle, Inner Stillness. Reflections and conversations exploring recovery work in spiritual disciplines and where they come together. The Outer Circle comes from a recovery exercise called the Three Circles. The Middle Circle contains the bottom line behaviors, those destructive patterns you are working to avoid. The Second Circle contains those behaviors, patterns, places, and relationships that, while not inherently bad, for you are an integral part of the spiral towards the middle circle. The outer circle contains the vision of your best and fullest self that you are seeking to live. Turning towards this full self is turning away from your middle circle. The outer circle explores daily practices that promote sobriety, presence, balance, connection, thriving, purpose, healing, and resilience. Inner stillness is a concept from Orthodox Christian spiritual thought that refers to the deepest part of a person's soul, the place where God lives and speaks. In pursuing the outer circle and the inner stillness, I believe we can find all that we need. Welcome to the outer circle, the inner stillness, journey inward, and lots of tools to get there. My name is Reese Basimio, and I'm excited to be here for this episode, which I'm loosely entitling, I have a number four part, and that's meant to be a reference <laughs> to multiple frameworks, and some nerds out there are getting it right away and laughing uh, or cringing either way. Anyway, I have a very fun guest, and I may say all of my guests are very special, but this time it's actually the truth. 
So this is uh, Christian Gonzalez. Hello, Christian. How are you? Hello. I'm great. I'm really excited to to be here. And I don't know what it says about me that my initial, my immediate response was to laugh at your number four part joke. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I guess that puts me squarely in the nerd category. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll be nerds together. It'll be great. Yeah. The, the the tease for this episode, we're going to be talking about both the Enneagram and internal family systems and spirituality and the, uh, the, the soup of them all, which I think we like. But uh, before we get there, would you share with the audience a little bit about who you are and what do you bring and what's your Enneagram type best you know it? And what do the IFS people say? Well, what parts are coming up for you right now? Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. So my name is Christian Gonzalez. Uh, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Arizona. And I uh, just recently went out on my own with my own uh, counseling practice, Light and Life Counseling. You will not be able to find it online because I just haven't done that. Probably because I have a very big procrastinator part because I am a Enneagram 9 with a one wing. So I put off things unless I know that I can do them perfectly. And usually that means that they just, they just don't get done. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> indefinitely put them off. But yeah, so being here, I definitely, you know, have my, uh, what parts are up right now? I guess there's a little bit of like a, an anxious part, for sure. That's saying like, you better get this right. You better not speak out of place. Um, I've got a, a part that's definitely a performer part that, you know, wants everyone listening to like me. And uh, <laughs> I think that those those things just come out, you know, they're there. And hopefully, I can relate to them well today, instead of letting them drive the bus, you know. <laughs> I hear that. Uh, what parts good. are up for you, man? Now what I... <laughs> parts are for me? Yeah, no, 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 it's completely fair. Uh, there's, uh, you know, my, my performer part is, is looking forward to playing because usually once the part's out in full, like I, I get a little, I get a little fun, I think. And there's like kind of an anxious and like performance anxiety part because again, like I want my technology to work. I hope my internet works. I hope you like me. I hope the listeners like me and everything. I say I haven't I haven't ever done a full Enneagram test. I think I'm more of more of a four, maybe like a three wing, uh, if I remember the numbers right. So I'm I'm all about feelings yeah. and expression and like I want to express myself just perfectly. And if I can't express myself perfectly, then I'm mad. So totally no, that's I think that's that's uh, that's awesome. And uh, yeah. you know, just to speak to your to your anxious part a little bit, uh, to quote the great late Fred Rogers, I like you just the way you are. Aww. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're all we're all good we're all good okay. here excellent i'm glad for the listener who may be like what are these guys doing uh so let's uh let's define terms a little bit so ifs internal family systems kind of the the going icebreaker in any ifs consultation group is you know what's your connection to the model so I'll, i guess I'll, I'll kick this one off but so it's so my connection to the internal family systems model which will well, i guess Okay, I'll say my connection. Then you can say yours. Then we'll define it, and that'll be a rough timeline. There's a planner part coming out. <laughs> so actually, it started a long time ago when I, I have a friend who does neurofeedback, Joshua Moore. He's amazing. And he had specifically specialized with uh, people with uh, dissociative identity disorder. And in talk, telling me about his work, you know, he would once in a while mention this idea, like an internal family system, not knowing anything, kind of the idea just intuitively made sense of like, oh, yeah, like, like, different aspects of herself. Okay, that kind of makes sense. And then later, uh, I learned it had a little bit of a connection to family systems, which 
also made a lot of sense as I was learning about addictions and recovery and trauma and just putting a person in their context made so much sense. And so when I finally looked up what is internal family systems, found the the book by Richard Schwartz and listened to a couple of podcasts, took a day training, I was in love right away. Uh, it just, the, the nature of the model made a whole bunch of intuitive sense. So I should say disclaimer. So I'm not officially IFS trained. Uh, I haven't taken the wonderful training from the IFS Institute. So, so these are all beginner ramblings. I am, I am under, I am in a couple, I am starting, I am starting a training. Um, it's through a different IFS group. So at the end of it, I will officially be IFS informed. So that's where I am. So that, there's my disclaimer for all of the people. Like I'm not officially an expert and I don't have a certification. I'm very much a beginner. You should read the book and take the training. Anyway, Christian, what's your, what's your connection to the model? Yeah, it might even be more tenuous than your own. Uh, so <laughs> I, I definitely um, have, have zero training in it whatsoever. I've read several books, you know, by several different authors. I have like the IFS skill workbooks that I work through, but I think probably, you know, my most direct experience with it is I'm actually going through IFS therapy myself. So kind of being in the chair, getting to do it, like I think probably has been some, you know, just in the field direct training of kind of understanding it. Because I, in the same way, I think like, you know, when we think about attachment, for example, right, like the number one way to lead somebody to secure attachment, the most important thing is to work on your own attachment really is kind of what it comes down to. Because you can't, you can't give somebody something that you don't have, like you just, it's impossible. So I, I think that has been a really interesting experience, you know, to, to get to know some of the more latent parts of myself, the parts that I've, you know, tried to kind of push aside different exiles, protectors that, you know, are in exile for like an Enneagram nine, for example. I think this is why having kind of a bunch of models right together can be really fun is we know that an Enneagram nines tend to dissociate from their anger, for example, until the anger pours out of them. And everyone is like, what is going on? This dude is usually so pleasant to be around. Like, where is this even coming from? But then you realize, again, like as an Enneagram 9, that you have this anger part that you've quickly learned to say, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that. So you shut it up, numb it out, whatever, until it just can't stay locked in anymore. Like that little, you know, Lewis Black character in Inside Out who just grabs the steering wheel and is like, you know, I'll show you something. <laughs> like, now you'll really pay attention to me. Ah! Very much. Yep. That's exactly it. And so when you when you're able to get a sense of what that's there for, you know, you can in, you can find yourself in these new in these new ways of relating to your own parts that actually help you get what you want instead of fueling the very thing that you fear the most. So that's been a really interesting thing for me, I think, kind of more to my own, you know, some of the other the other work that I do. I work for the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America as a young adult ministries coordinator. And so my own interest in IFS and the Enneagram is also really like ministerial and theological and in, in what it means kind of for us to be people who are made in God's image after God's own likeness and how we kind of lean into that and how we help other people, you know, clear away some of the stuff that gets in the way, some of the stuff that obscures that image, some of the stuff that helps, that keeps us from actually living life fully now, you know, being in the kingdom now, this kingdom that Jesus says is, within you know it's not like some far off distant country that we're headed toward it's 
it's a place within and at hand. So it's, you know, vastly different, I think, than a lot of the, I grew up in evangelical circles and the whole idea is like, well, you got to go there when you die. And it's like, just hang in there, buddy, you know, Uh hang in there. And (laughs) like, you'll get to the party in the sky one day. Right. Hopefully (laughs) there's a bright place coming up, but for now you're screwed. So, uh, I, I yeah. that's one of the things that I really loved about I, what what I know about uh, IFS so far. What I've learned, I have been very interested to explore its parallels with spirituality, specifically with with Eastern Orthodoxy and so internal family systems. They so some of the, some of the lingo that you've been hearing us talk a little bit about. So we talk about this family of of different parts that have different roles. They do different things. You know, some are bigger, some are smaller. Uh, they can definitely get like imbalanced and extreme, or they can just be like, hey, this is just a part of my adaptive personality. But all of those parts kind of rotate, swirl around what uh, IFS calls the self. You know, there, it seems like there's there's a couple of different ways we could talk about it, like like the self, like the core, the inner observer. I would love to hear somebody who's more familiar with orthodoxy than me talk about, like, could this be that the these folks have found some clinical technical terms for the soul or for, for the noose, that part of us that knows and that can know God. And I, it, uh, what I like about the model is they, they put a lot of emphasis on all that is within, like deep within this wonderful thing that is the human person, this, this huge potentiality of wonderful things. There's a lot of power and a lot of resilience and just a lot of space to hold stuff, to be healing, to connect with people, which seems kind of consistent with what am I imagine God might be like, or, you know, we would say, yes, we are in the image of God. And that goodness, that image is always there, always present, always fully formed, never, never, never goes away, never gets tarnished, can get blocked, most definitely. And, and maybe that's, that's the thing is we approach the kingdom or grow in theosis, you know, orthodox jargon for, you know, growing more Christ-like throughout our lives. Yeah. Like it's, it's this journey inward and yes, to, reference like what you know c.s lewis might describe it as you know it's like that that further up further in only for us it's like deeper and it gets bigger <laughs> something like that yeah no i mean i think that's a really good way to put it because there is i think there's this notion that even in the psalms is, is touched on right this idea of like deep crying out to deep that the the deeper we go the deeper it gets um the more you know space we're able to open up both within ourselves and in the world like suddenly the world becomes less scary you know because we're we're just less activated and we're not reacting from our from our parts right like when a when our parts are activated our kids suddenly are like way more irritating than they really are normally you know it's the same kind of they're sad they're upset they're doing their thing but when i realize oh i'm reacting to my child this way because there's some part of me that they resemble that i don't like some part of me that i'm embarrassed of or ashamed of that i think should just shut up right so like if my kid is whining or throwing a fit or whatever like it's probably because and i start saying like oh they're so entitled this kid is so entitled <laughs> well really yeah. what's probably going on is that i'm projecting my own entitled part that i'm ashamed of that i've been told is bad onto them and then i start relating to them from a really critical part of myself a really angry part of myself whatever it is that i feel like is going to keep them quiet maybe it's yeah. like a, a firefighting part of me that you know, when I feel upset or whatever, I reach for a snack. And so I'm like, would you like a, would you like a pro like a little snack bar here? Have this kid here. Why don't you watch TV? Why don't you I just do all the things that I can to like 
mm-hmm. get them just to shut up because I haven't learned how to deal with my own crying children inside mm-hmm. like that. And that's really what happens. You know, we start relating to people who resemble our parts the way that we relate to yeah. our own parts, right. which is just wild. Right. Interacting with people who resemble our, our own parts or maybe some of our exile or more primal parts or a younger part of me trying to take on adult responsibilities. Like like when one of my like like teenage parts or little kid parts you know, tries to then be a parent to my to my very big energy boys, uh, it's it's not so great. And what's really fascinating for me as I've been reflecting on this some is I, I can with the help of my own IFS therapist and all of my friends and priests and all of that, like now I, I can kind of tell the difference of like, oh, I have a lot of space right now. Like I'm able to do more, be more, be more present compared to when it's like, no, I'm, I'm definitely, um, I'm angry, I'm hangry, I'm horny, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm sad, I'm burdened, I'm stressed, you know, whatever, whatever, and all of it. Uh, yeah, there mm-hmm. becomes very little space. <sighs> You're the, the psalm reference, like the deep calling into deep, that idea of where we're going deeper into ourselves. I was thinking about what you said about attachment too, and how, you know, like a major, like if we were going to distill, like what is our product as counselors that we're selling? It's, it's, we could say it's, it's healthy relationships, healthy attachments. And there's this uh, clinical idea of attunement where it's like a right brain to right brain connection. My my deepest empathetic curious self is seeing your deepest empathetic curious self and we're connecting on that level, like the deepest part of me and the deepest part of you. Or we might say like the two, actually the two selves, not my angry part and your insecure part, not your entitled part and my defensive part, but like actually us, like there's a whole lot of stuff, whole lot of healing, whole lot of empathy that can happen there. Part of why I don't really like doing couples counseling is I kind of feel like that's where they should be coming from and they don't and they won't. And then it gets sad. It really is. A, I mean, couples counseling is a beast unto itself. And, and honestly, it's primarily what I do. You know, I'm um, mostly a couples counselor. Uh, I have some training in EFT and it's, it's an interesting model EFT. It's, it's always been a a little bit more difficult for me to to utilize well. And I feel like since kind of discovering IFS, it sort of feels like that's been the missing link. You know, like that's been the missing link to to the whole thing for me because it seems like when you can help couples understand that they're it's not even themselves that they're interact like themselves that are interacting with one another, their selves. I don't even, I don't even know what it'd be, but it's their parts. Like it's actually just their parts are fighting with one another. You know, when someone's like, I don't know why I feel so much better when she's like on vacation or, or like when she's taking a business trip and it's like, and, but I also miss her. Like I miss her when she's gone, but then she comes back and my stress level's through the roof. And it's like, well, well, what goes on? Well, it's like, I don't know. She's like upset about stuff and da, da, da. Okay. All right. So sounds to me like what's actually going on is it's her that you really like. You, you I mean, you chose her, you married her for, for a reason. Like that it's not, you know, some weird thing to try to figure out like you must you care about her what you're reacting to is her angry part or her whatever part right like that's the thing that you're that you don't know what to do with and if we start to go inside we might realize that like oh it's because maybe you don't have even the best relationship with your own anger or your own fear or your own whatever it might be and so you don't know how to handle it when it shows up in another person and again she resembles the part of you that you don't know how to interact with right? Parts of us that we've been told are bad or corrupt or just not wanted. I mean, really, if you, if you really think about what all of these, these modalities have in common, right? The, the Enneagram, the IFS, EFT, is there are these different strategies that we've tried to depend on to get us love and acceptance 
and relationship and connection. And they worked for a little while. They worked when we were kids. But now they're burdened and they're tired and they don't work so well anymore. And so they actually cause the very things that we don't want to happen, right? Like a blaming partner is not going to like, is not going to wake up their, you know, their spouse and say like, oh, wow, like, you know, when you're so mean and critical to me, that really makes me want to be close to you. It's like, it's really a great thing because like, you know, when you're coming at me with your porcupine quills out, the thing that I feel like doing is hugging you. Nobody wants to hug a porcupine. So like, we got nope. to figure out what to do with your porcupine parts. You know, <laughs> like, what are they trying to do? And yeah. are they doing that for you? Probably not. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Unless there's like a really like self-loathing part. And that would just be like a really interesting story. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm tracking. I mean, I think that's really great. Uh, I mean, I, I, a little bit, I know of uh, emotions focused therapy. I mean, I really love it uh, as well. I think like the idea of like, I like the emotional raw spots has really stood out. Again, the idea of yeah, your your fight is a, it's on the surface. It's about this one little thing, you know, you forgot to pick up the coffee or whatever, but like it's that in the context of like every other similar or dissimilar sort of wound throughout your life. And so, you know, no fight is ever about what the fight is about. It's, it's always about like all of the rest of life. Which is really interesting because I feel like my clients always have a hard time understanding that. Like, not about the coffee like yeah but i wouldn't feel this way if you picked up the coffee like it doesn't matter what what it would be like the bed was unmade if you know dishes were in the sink if what like it's not about that it's about what it communicates that it's like he you're not he doesn't respect you you know like that's yeah you know i think we're talking about in both these frameworks we're tackling today uh ifs and the enneagram there there's a good deal of metacognition that needs to be able to go on and uh at the end that's you know you know, fancy counselor jargon for, we'd say, thinking about our thoughts or noticing our thoughts, noticing our parts, noticing our feelings. And that seems like that's like the major threshold internal mechanism to do is to be able to recognize, you know, I'm not this thought that I'm thinking. I'm not this part that I'm moving in. I'm not this feeling that I'm having. In one sense, I'm not even like this body sensation. Um, Those are all aspects of me. And if I can step back and notice them and observe them, then there becomes the potential to notice them with, uh, with, with openness, with compassion. And, and in creating that internal gap, there becomes a lot more potential for, for choice and for, for different things. And so, but that, that takes practice. And it seems like some people do it more easily than others. Some people intuit that. Other people, it, it's, it's really hard, especially if they're so very dissociated, disintegrated in general. Getting them to that metacognition spot is, can often be a lot of work. I'd love to uh, jump into the Enneagram a little bit, which actually I'm, I'm so surprised like, how many people don't know about the Enneagram. I guess I'm in an insular little bubble, but every now and then like, I run into people who are like, what's the Enneagram? And I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't know what it was either at one point. But anyway, Christian, what is, is the it, Enneagram? Is that that thing that looks like two pentagrams having... Si- well, it's certainly... <laughs> <laughs> like, like, it's, like the symbol looks like two pentagrams having sex, but uh, yeah, like okay. it seems a lot more frightening than... <laughs> you know, then like, uh, it probably is the, the Enneagram to, you know, again, as kind of a, uh, self-led explorer of it, it, it's this really like fairly ancient kind of map of the soul is probably the way that I, the way that I would describe it and understanding in the same way. I think this is where IFS kind of really has a helpful terminology for us that the, that each of us 
are created with these, we have these different parts of us or characteristics, and we tend to rely on some of them more heavily than others. And the way that the Enneagram would describe it is there's these nine kind of primary modes of being that we will move toward. And each of us have all nine of these types inside of us or in all nine of these parts, but some of them lie a little bit more dormant than, than others. So some of us maybe learned early on that we needed to be really perfect uh, in order to get the praise and the attention that we needed or that we needed to be really helpful. Um, that as long as we were always serving and worrying about other people's needs and that we weren't selfish ourselves, uh, then that we got the attention that we needed or that we needed to perform well or that maybe some of us kind of internalize in a sense of like no one really understanding us. And so we needed to like present ourselves in this really unique fashion. Um, or we learned that we needed to really retreat into our own brains to understand the world and make sense of it really cognitively and uh, develop this fear of incompetence. Or some of us have internalized a sense that the world is unsafe. And so we need to surround ourselves with a tribe or constantly be looking out for what could go wrong and prevent and kind of preparing to make sure that that doesn't happen or that there's just a lot of pain in the world and it's best to avoid it and just do a lot of cool, fun vacations and like go to Disneyland and, you know, just make sure that your schedule is always packed with parties and all of that kind of stuff. Um, or that the best way to handle conflict is to go at it head, head on, you know, just like dominate the crap out of everybody and make sure that they're doing what you want so that you never have to feel vulnerable. Um, and then there's always, you know, my type, which is the like dissociate from everything. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah. everything's okay. You know, the, 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 the best thing that I've seen that describes like what the, what the inner life of a nine is like, have you ever seen that meme of the dog sitting in like a room that's on fire and he's yeah, holding yeah, yeah. a cup of coffee yep. at his dinner table and it just says, this is fine. And like this, like that is almost exactly what it feels like. The world's on fire. And uh -huh. like my coping way is like, I'm gonna sit here with my coffee and just, this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> right it's all gonna be <laughs> yeah that's that's awesome yeah so that's my my understanding of of the enneagram and and really one of the one of the best ways that i've kind of heard someone say it is that your number is not i almost feel like people want to think about it in terms of a fun personality test kind of like the myers-briggs or you know which friends character are you okay. like it's like that kind of a thing yeah i think but, when it comes out like that is where I, 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 have, a, I have a harder time with it because that, that's like the gimmicky version of it. And like, I, I, I can't do that because mm -hmm. I, I don't have time for gimmicks. But yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's a, there's a lot of... Because then it becomes like an excuse, right? Like, right. Yeah. 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 Or... I'm just a four. Right. I'm just a seven. Yeah. And it can be, it can done done poorly. It can feel kind of reductionistic. And that's, I, I know I... There, there's a part of me that had to overcome like a little bit of initial resistance to the Enneagram kind of because it had a little bit of that gimmicky feel to start with. And anyway, and then I, then I got into it and discovered more. Yeah, because it actually like charts a path toward growth and integration yeah. and healing, right? Like that's the, yeah. that's really the bright side of the thing is that like it shows you, oh, you know, if you're really kind of, uh, you know, if you're a two and the two is going to be the helper, the one who has no needs, Right. But like is there to like help everybody else's needs, right? You begin to see that there's kind of this tendency toward pride because who has no needs? Like everyone has needs. That's just everybody that's got needs. What, God is the only person who has no needs. So like if you're gonna tell me that you have no needs, like you make yourself out to be God, that's pretty pretty terrifying spiritual water, I guess, to be in if you want to make yourself out to be God. I know some people who in the very beginning tried to do that and it didn't go so well for them. But we begin to see like, well, actually, like what the two in order to grow needs to do 
is to become more acquainted with their own need and to learn how to express it, which is why the edge for growth for the two is going to start looking more like a four, right? Who has like very much no problem with the idea of like their own personal world and retreating into it even to find comfort from the mean, scary world. As if like, I'm such an exception. I'm so great. I'm so, I need to rely on myself fully in my own artistic capacity, which is why the four's edge of growth would be toward one, right? Realizing, no, there are rules and there are things that apply to you as well. <laughs> like you are not, yeah. you know, some exception to the human experience. Like you're actually a part of it as well. Right. Well, that goes for all of the other fours, but <laughs> okay. I have rules. <laughs> not um, me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some one some of the things I, I have come to really appreciate about the Enneagram is that like like internal family systems, it's it's a it's a non-pathology based model where it's not saying, you know, none none of these none of the nine types are bad. Just like we might say there, there's not actually any bad parts. We'll definitely say a person can hit an extreme or hit an imbalance. And like you said, like have a have a have a, a blind spot or an accompanying growth edge. But but I really love the way that it's uh, it can be just this really like open kind of compassion driven model of saying, okay, let's get a sense for where on the nine types are you? What's your particular emotional raw spot that you're tending to? What's your particular attachment you need that didn't get met? And and then what's the specific path forward for you? And, and I think the the other thing that I really appreciate, and I guess this is a little bit about. Uh, both of them too. But even, so you were talking about, you know, the the two has to learn something from the four, who has to learn something from the one, who has to learn something from one of the others. There's the sense of the the range of the parts, so the range of the types. And and this shows up in internal family systems too. Like like the most extreme version would be saying like, hey, like even even the part of you that wants to, you know, commit suicide, there's a way that's, it's not okay to commit suicide at all. Don't do it. But there's a way to say, you know, even that part of you that wants to do that is actually trying to help you. It's trying to, you know, protect you, save you in some way. Doesn't have all the perspective, doesn't have all of the resiliency. And there's there's a lot of limits to, to what that part can do. But um, but when you can look at, you know, even that part or more, um, more my everyday context, because I work with addictions. So, you know, having somebody look at their, their addict part. Um, there, there's this one guy I've been working with who, you know, his, part of his... The tradition has been like to write this like really like angry, like hateful letter to his addict every month. And so we've been experimenting with this, like, what if you could actually like talk to that part or get to know like, what is this part trying to do for you or whatever? And it's been an interesting kind of cool journey to recognize, oh, wow, like even that part that I hate, there's a, something good in it or there's something adaptive. And then if, if you find that there can then be the growth edge to be like, okay, how do I rebalance this. You're bringing up some, I think, really, really important things, right? Because the, the more that we tend to like isolate these parts or come against them, you know, which again would be other parts of us that are relating to those parts, right? Like that we're not relating to them. We're letting our parts relate to each other and that kind of drives them crazy. But the more even with something like an addict part or whatever, like if I can hate it and my thought is like, if I can just kick it out of the system, like if I could just get rid of it, then I would be fine, right? And I think about one of the things that I really love about how, you know, Dick Schwartz in particular talks about parts like in his books is these kind of like parentified children, right? That they're they're operating within the system as like they're carrying burdens that they were never meant 
to bear, right? So if you think about them as children, and when your own kids misbehave, you know, and like they're, you know, they do something that they shouldn't do, like they hit a sibling or they yell or whatever, oftentimes, you know, our reflexive kind, our reflexive move is to kind of say, go to your room, right? And we send them to their room. And obviously, that makes the behavior stop. And it makes them calm down. And suddenly, they're in this very reflective place where they think, wow, I really could have handled my emotions way better than I just did. I really should not have done that. And I feel great remorse for everything that I've done. I should immediately go apologize to my sibling and fall prostrate before my parents and beg for their forgiveness. But no, I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? Like that's not, that's not what goes on when you send a misbehaving child to their room or someone, a child who's dysregulated. In fact, the opposite happens and the behavior intensifies. Like things actually get worse for the kid and for you and for your home. This is everything is, is way, way worse. So if we can understand these parts of ourselves that maybe we are very reactive to as children who need our attention, then we can almost like, again, begin that first step of unblending from, and I love that word unblend that, that is used in IFS stuff, right? To say like, oh, this is, not, this is not me. This is just a part. This is just a part of me that I need to learn how to relate to a little bit better because that's actually going to help this part relax is if I can say, okay, what do you need? What's going on? Why are you screaming at daddy? Right? Like, like that really is kind of the thing that a good enough parent can do. Right? <laughs> like, we just need to get a little bit of distance to go, okay, this is just one, one part of me. And I think even incorporating just that language of like, there's this part of me that's really angry, helps me at least begin to unconsciously, or maybe even very consciously realize well, there's other parts of me that don't feel this way. This is just one part of what's going on. So that cr- creates a little bit of distance already, right? You know, you're talking about kind of this observation and like the metacognition and all of that. Um, but in order to do that, there does, you know, there does need to be some level of separating, some level of stepping back. And I think if we can even incorporate, that's what, so I've been really consciously trying in my own life to just say like, there's a part of me that feels this way so that I can recognize that is not my entire experience right now. There's a part of me that's overwhelmed with everything that I have to do today. There's another part of me that's really excited to do some of that stuff. But if I just say, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so this, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, then I can't access that other part of me that's like really enjoys getting stuff done. It really enjoys like writing papers and whatever. It's just like I'm stuck in my overwhelm. Right. If I can recognize it's there, there's a part of me that feels overwhelmed. There's a part of me that feels tired. Or even on the relational level, you know, there's a part of me that feels offended by so-and-so. There's a part of me that feels defensive against this person. You know, there's a part of me that's feeling like I need the other person to, to be okay. And, uh, you know, so filtering that into the relationships and then hopefully recognizing, oh, this person is saying these mean things. I think that's just a part. I don't think that's actually them or which also comes in handy when mm-hmm. like your kids are like saying mean things to you, recognizing that's not really like them. That's like, they're like hangry. I have a nap today part. <laughs> so right. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I love where you're going with this Christian. It's starting to answer one of the questions I was interested in exploring a little bit. And that would be some, some critiques that come against systems like this. So there's, Oh, I think that there's kind of a, a general critique of something like counseling in general. It's like, you know, why do you need to like, why do you need to dig up the past? And why do you need to, why is that so important? You're, you're so inwardly focused. Like why, what, what's the usefulness of that? 
and then I think against the Enneagram in particular, there, there's, you know, some critique um, from, from Christians too, where they're saying, well, our identity is in Christ. Like, why are you trying to give us another label? And like, what's, what's the purpose of that? And so, you know, you're, you're starting to unpack some stuff like, well, just as in a family system, leaving stuff uh, ignored is like really detrimental because it becomes like cankerous, cancerous, and like later blows up. But I'd be curious. I mean, what are some other thoughts you have around why, especially as Christians, why why should an Orthodox person think about their internal system or bother with their enneagram type? Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a really good question. I'm trying to think of the way to go about this. Well, first of all, I think there's a long standing tradition in Orthodox Christianity in particular about the inner life, right? The, you know, the idea of stillness, hesychia, separating from our thoughts, and uh, just kind of like, I mean, allowing ourselves to be swept into the the movement of God, the, you know, the action of God and the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we might become deified, right? And in the reality of deification, it, by the way, I think we often go at this from a very Western mind that like somehow it's this kind of like, you know, goal that you get to. And it's like, and, and I've crossed the line and now I'm deified. I did it, you know? And like the minute you think that you've already jumped into pride and now you're back to square one, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. But it's, I mean, how could the finite ever become the infinite? Like there's there's just, there's no possible way. So So deification is this ongoing reality in which we, live like it's all it's all headed that way everything is headed toward i mean maximus the confessor promises that everything is headed toward its final stasis in union with god which is what deification is so we're not just talking about the deification of me the deification of you we're talking about the deification of all things right the unification of all things with god all things being held together in him all things were made by him and all things are made for him until christ should become all in all right like this is very much the 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 pattern that everything is is headed toward is this union with God, being under God as our King. But what Jesus promises is that that's not just something that happens in the future; it's something that's ongoing and real right now. You know, this is why the first words that like Jesus says, uh, you know, out of in his earthly ministry are like metanoia, repent, change your mind, like change the way that you see things. Right, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is within. It's here and it's now. It's not some far off, you know, place that you, you know, you get to, to go be, but the idea of having the king in our midst and within us. So I, I do think that one of the, you know, uh, there's this, there's this really great kind of Christian perspective on IFS in a book called Altogether You by a gal whose name I'm not going to be able, last name I'm going to be able to say, I'm probably going to slaughter it. Jenna Ramirezma. Yeah. I, see, I, I don't know if I could have said Ramirezma. Ramir, yeah, I can't do it. Anyway. But it's a fantastic book. Yeah, I'm sorry. I admire your work. I don't know if you listen, if you listen to this, but please don't be offended by my inability to say your name. It, your work is fantastic. The she has this. She brings up this idea of the self, like that core self, kind of as you know the Christian language that she gives it is the imago dei, and I I love this idea that like actually that what IFS touches on as self is really that image of God that has been planted in us from the very, very beginning. And if we are going to learn how to um, relate with God, like we need to access that image because it's it's kind of that same thing of like deep crying out to deep, right? Like if this is the deepest part of who we most truly are, 
then this is where our authentic spirituality is possible. Otherwise, we run into these very shallow spiritualizing parts that get us into trouble because what they want to do is they want to just get rid of all of our sinful parts. You know, like they treat them with disrespect, unkindness. They want to hurt them, you know, and they want them just to basically, you know, STFU and go away. Like that is, that is essentially what, what we, how we end up relating to ourselves. And so we might even use spiritual practices simply to make ourselves feel better about our lives, our anxieties, or whatever. And so we don't actually get to this place of like true encounter with the living God who dwells within, whose image that we're created in. Because we, we just think like, you know, I need, to, I need to be a better person in order for God to love me. I need to do X, Y, Z, pray more, fast more, go to church more, all of these different things, which really, by the way, embody like a very anxious attachment to God, right? Like, like if I, I have to do all of the right things at the, in the right way, or, you know, maybe I need to text him constantly throughout the day to make sure he still loves me, or do I, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Oh, like, like the anxious attachment to God, like you're describing like my whole high school spirituality experience. <laughs> like, I need to do more. I need to do more. I can oh, never totally, do enough. Man. And like, I mean, also, I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I also grew up in you know, very like, you know, Protestant evangelical circles. And so some of their theology, like kind of like lends itself to that anxiety anyway. But, uh, but, but I'm, mm-hmm. I also had my anxious parts feeding into that as well. 100%. 100%. And that's, and that's very, I think, a pretty universal experience for people. Or, you know, like, why go to church at all? Like, that, and we end up going into this avoidant kind of thing. Like, I, I, all that really matters is that I don't kill somebody or rape anybody or whatever, right? Like, I'll just kind of, right. I'll do it myself. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. The shift from deification, theosis, sanctification, salvation as this thing that I get to someday or this one-time thing. I mean, I, I mean, we can, we, we felt the limits of that, but I, I think the shift from that transaction at some point to here's this ongoing transformation, I think is really, really vital. And thinking again about why, why do this? Why do counseling? Why do inner reflection? In one sense, like, why do a gratitude practice? Why pray? Why go to church? It's something about how the medium also changes us. Like, why, why give thanks every day? And, you know, you know, it's good to see things that, that, that are good to be thankful for. But also you become the kind of person who looks for things to be grateful for. And there's a transformative aspect. Or the sense of like, well, why look inward so you know what your weaknesses are, what your blind spots are? Why learn how to describe what sorts of things you're feeling? And it's because by doing so, you become the kind of person who does those sorts of things. And you you learn how to slow yourself down and, and look inward. And I think one of the most powerful quotes I've ever encountered is, you know, you know, St. Seraphim of Sarav, you know, acquire the inner stillness and a thousand around you will be saved. And it's this idea of, again, from within, from within that deep, that, you know, something happens when you are okay. Something happens when you find that inner stillness, that inner peace, and can regularly, freely access it, and then see the world from within that that stillness, as opposed to, I'm seeing the world from a fearful place, or everybody's a threat. Or I'm seeing the world from an angry place, or everybody's, you know, super offensive, or I'm seeing the a world... Jerk. Right, right, right. Yeah. Or I'm seeing the world through this political party part. And so everybody else is an idiot. But if I can just be like, here I am in the stillness with God. Oh, yeah, there's all of these other icons of God all around me. Okay, then the appropriate response is veneration rather than rage. Right. And and I, th- I would also even probably say that it's, it's veneration, and then also a move toward liberation, right? Like we want to we want people to be liberated from the things that keep them bound. 
and uh, you know, both I'm talking both about like in, internal systems that we're bound by and oppressed by, um, but external ones as well. You know, like when we when we begin to recognize, you know, that there are these kinds of uh, corporate parts, um, corporal parts. I don't mean like corporate business, but like us as a as a whole society kind of tend to tend to operate out of. Then you know we are filled with the spirit enough that we can become ones who want justice. And I don't mean justice in the sense of like, this is unfair and I want my, you know, my whatever, but like in, in God's justice, which is about like setting things right. Right. It's about, it's not about uh, fair and unfair. I mean, like it's, it's about what, like what, how, how can this be made justified? Right. And you think about like justified margins on things where like things are kind of squared and like put, put proper. That to me is like what God's justice wants is like, is it, is it really fair that like some people, you know, can have billions of dollars to go to space for 10 minutes while other people like starve to death? Like, how is, how is that, you know, God's shalom? Like that's not. And like, there's a part of me that should be able to go like, I don't think that that's, that that's good. But if I'm operating from a place of self from that Imago Dei, then I'd be more inclined to, instead of ragefully go into the, you know, the temple and turn the tables, I can do so from a place of self, from a place of the image of God. Like, and really that's the stuff that like, you know, I think we, we, re- we read a lot of funny things onto Jesus. Like we, we really, <laughs> we project our parts onto him, uh-huh. you know, but the problem yeah. is like our parts are burdened. Whereas Jesus had parts, but he, he didn't have burdens, right? Like there was, there was no burden that he carried. When Jesus goes and flips the temple, I asked, you know, I was talking with someone recently about this and I was like, why do they, why do they do that? Why did he, why did he do that? And he's like, well, he couldn't, he was so offended that they would desecrate the temple. And so like, they talked about like his offense to it. And I was like, I, don't, I, that doesn't seem right to me. Like, I think you'd be offended. I think I'd be offended. But I think that what, what Jesus is seeing much more is like, here's these, here, he sees his people and he loves his people and they are being, you know, sucked dry because they've had a, this God who has been presented to them, who, you know, demands sacrifice and not mercy. You know, they're being, his animals are caged because I mean, he, he does all kinds of stuff in that, in that thing, right? He goes in, he flips the, he turns the tables, he sets the animals free. And like, it's about this, I think, frustration that Jesus has with the exploitation of his people. Like they're being, they're being, they're being robbed. You know, that's not, that's not cool. You can't rob my people. And I think if we were operating from a place of self, like I, we would, we would be able to, I think, courageously kind of be, be in the world and, and for the world rather than kind of seeing the world, which is, I think, a big part of the conversation that we're having now in a lot of ways, you know, with kind of, you talked about like the political party, like the politi- the politization of politicization, politi- politici- politicizing, politicalization, <laughs> yeah, no. the politicizing of literally everything, right? Like you, you, you can't say a single thing without someone putting like some sort of political label on it. You know, it's like, well, maybe we should help feed poor people. And they're like, oh, well, that's kind of socialistic of you, isn't it? I'm like, I, I guess, I guess that could be, you know, I, right. <laughs> but I think it just yeah. sounds like something G- Jesus told me to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's, 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 it's individuals speaking from, from parts and burdens and then forming groups who speak from like collective burdens. And then there's like the intergenerational burdens and then like all of that. And all of the, I mean, all of yeah. those things are really real, but then it, but, but you're right. It's like, 
those don't necessarily make the greatest starting points for healing conversations. They might make good conversations for table turning conversations, but you know, I think something I was thinking about it with uh, you know Jesus turning turning the tables over, he, he does that, and there's significance and importance to why he does that. But he does that twice in three years, in thirty three years of life, and the rest of the time he's teaching, he's healing people, he's mentoring his disciples, and as a, if, if memory serves, like you know, of all of the things he taught his disciples to do, he did not teach them to go into the temple and turn tables over. Like that was not something that was duplicated. What was duplicated were the teachings, the healings, the prayers, the, you know, the, the liturgy and everything. So again, I, I think in looking at like, what is the point of like looking at all of the parts is good to, good to recognize. Yeah. Like, it, you know, you know, okay. So, you know, so Jesus had an eight part, the, this, the kind of righteous indignation. Cool. So do I. Okay. Uh, it exists. There, there exists the occasion when that is the right part for the job, and possibly those are rare, really rare occasions. Possibly much more. We need, uh, you know, other parts to be out again. Looking for, you know, what is the goal? Is the goal just I want to like burn everything down right. and like disrupt everything, or do I actually want to heal people, heal society? So, well, and that's and I think that's a that's a really a, a good a good point, right? That like Jesus has this eight part, and and we also have eight parts that you know, I think is ultimately what got the early Christians killed so often was these eight parts that they had. They didn't show up like, you know, going in and like kicking down doors and flipping over tables and stuff. But they they did show up in very similar ways where like people were not going to just like sit there and take it in some way. You know, like I, I think about, oh man, I can't remember the saint's name. Some holy fool in Russia though. Like one of the things that like really got, you know, got people's attention was when during Great Lent, he went out and sat in like the middle of like St. Petersburg and was just like eating meat, you know, like during the reign of Ivan the Terrible or something like this. Right. And like that itself is challenging the status quo. And like people don't like that. People don't want that. Yeah. But that's, you know, he's not flipping tables, but he's certainly turning them on their heads in some right. in some way. Yeah. Right. Or even um, yeah. or, or with, like, like with, or you got yeah, as I say, St. Maria Skopsova, who most, I don't know if you've ever read her biography, but she was definitely an Enneagram 8. Like, there's no way that she wasn't an Enneagram 8. Um, <laughs> but, like, her her 8-ness shows up in this really subversive Jewish way of, like, helping Jews get out of, you know, Nazi-invaded France. Like, you know, she's kind of like, whatever, screw it, I'm going to forge these baptismal certificates with some, like, priest friend of mine and, like, sneak people out. Like, that that is baller, you know? And, like... Someone, someone who doesn't have an eight part isn't going to do that, right? Or uh, what I was thinking too is even just like the uh, our, our long tradition of virgin martyrs, where you know, so, you know, something about like you know, rigorously, even aggressively holding on to one's virginity, like it, it's very it, countercultural, and like something about that is offensive to people. They're like, "How dare you not have sex?" Um, or like reasons. I, I love Jesus more. Whatever <laughs> <laughs> it has reasons. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, yeah, it's a sense of, yeah, having a sense of here's how things are rightly ordered. Here's a sense of justice. And here's a way that I'm going to kind of just do it, even though it's going to buck society a little bit. It's a really beautiful mm -hmm. thing, you know, and again, done, done in balance, done in order. And, you know, and that's, I guess, part of the point of, of all of this is looking to see what are the parts, what are my strengths, what are my leanings? How do I move in them in balance, in order, in compassion, in in, in confidence, in, in in courage, rather than just in abrasive anger and vengeance and bitterness and insecurity? And that makes a difference, I think.
and how could it not lead to like deep, deep freedom in any number of ways? You know, I mean, we, we become, I mean, we really are, I, I firmly believe more and more that like we exist in hells of our own devising, you know, like we, we kind of keep ourselves locked in, in a prison, especially because, you know, I think about like when St. Paul writes to Timothy, that Jesus Christ is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And it's a very, it's a very curious quotation, right? Like where it's like Jesus saves all, but especially the believers. And I think the the only difference is that like the, the non, the, like the not especially part, right? Is it's like Jesus has come and he's opened all the prison doors. Everyone is free. Everyone is, everyone is let, let loose. But the ones who believe it are the ones who are, who walk out of the, the cell, right? Who decide that they're going to go live courageously in the world to meet, to meet Christ, to serve Christ and their neighbors, um, to give themselves away for the world. Like that, that is the freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. And it can only be accessed if we are finding that image of God within. Like that, like that really is, I mean, if you look at any icon, right? Like I think we, sometimes I feel like we need to, we need to readjust almost the way that we, we catechize about these things. Because I think sometimes we look at, you know, we go, oh, this is like, this saint and that saint and that saint. And here's all the cool, awesome things that they did. But core to that is like, we sort of turn them into like, you know, like the X-Men of orthodoxy or the Avengers, like in some capacity that like, here's all these like superheroes who are bit by some radioactive Jesus. And like, then they also <laughs> like get Jesus powers too. And like, I, I don't, I don't know that that's like a helpful way to think about it. Right. Completely goofy. The, the saints are also a little bit like the Highlander because it, upon a reading, it kind of seems the only way you can kill a saint is to cut his head off. <laughs> yes. yes. And sometimes not even that. Right. Like they have to give you permission to do that sometimes. Right, right, right. Like the St. Pantolaimon, right? The story of him is like the sword shattering on his neck and all of this kind of stuff. It's, like, it's just fantastic. Yeah. He's like, all right, you can do it now. And then the executioner's like, yeah, I'm good. I don't want to, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I, that was, you, you, <laughs> you broke my sword. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think more accurately is like, what if we could look at the saints and say like, oh, these are people who lived out of self and that self is the image of God. Like, like that is what is going on here. This is not Maria being awesome, right? This is Maria being Christ. Like th that, that is what is going on here is that this is, this is Christ's work. This is Christ in our midst. Like, this is what is going on. Christ in his saints. Like th th that is the idea, but it's not like these are a team of Avengers that like need, you know, that need to be assembled to you know, fight the forces of darkness in the world or whatever. It's like, these are people who have been unburdened, who have unblended so, so deeply from their parts that the image of God within cannot help but radiate from their faces. You know, like you think of Stephen who shines with like, who shines like, who has the face of an angel and is martyrdom, right? This is a dude who's been freed from burdens. This is a dude who is not blended with his parts anymore. And like, there's moments, I think, and this is why I'm saying that I think theosis is this is not a destination that once you get it, you got it. That's a very kind of Western success driven model that we have. But it's this constant unlearning, a constant unblending, a constant saying like, I am not you know, denying of, of the self or rather saying like, oh, those parts are not me. I'm like, that is not me. What is me is Christ. That That is who I am. Right. Like I am I, in in a very real sense, like that same Jesus that we see walking on the planet, that is who I am in my, in my core, the de in the deepest part of me. And so I need to kind of learn to step away from, from these, these things that are not 
getting me what I want. And we, we have such a, this unhealthy, like way of relating with ourselves, you know, that we, we don't, I mean, most basic and most core to Orthodox anthropology is that human beings are good. We're good. They're like, we're not, we're not evil. We're not bad. You know, we, we have, I think, adopted so much of kind of like this, the Hobbesian mentality that, you know, is so like replete in evangelicalism, the kind of like, you know, what people really, really need is more force put upon them to keep them in line. What they really, really need uh, is to be threatened with punishment, what they, <laughs> or whatever it is to get them to act in line. But again, like that's, it's just not, that's just not our understanding as Orthodox Christians. It's like that we're, we're actually fundamentally good. And our, the problem is that we, we pick up these, these burdens, you know, I mean, uh, Father Stephen Freeman has this, this great quote that I love where he says, Jesus did not come to make bad men good, but he came to make dead men live. And like, that is much more, the reality is it's not, a, we're not our, our, our problem is, as human beings is not a moral failing. It's an ontological problem. Like that's our problem is that we do all of these weight. We go through all of these things and all of our parts, I think are in some way attempts to avoid death of some kind, whether it's relational death, existential death, um, actual death, all of that. Like the, these are our defenses against, uh, against death. I mean, really like this, is, this following, you know, like the emotionally focused therapy stuff, like Sue Johnson makes it very clear that isolation is inherently traumatic. Like it just, it's, it, and, and I don't know what else to call that, but an experience of death, you know, like when are you more isolated than when you're dead in the ground? That's an existential problem. That's pretty alone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good because like you're saying, like saying our, our primary challenge is not like a moral feeling, but like ontological confusion, we could say, gets to this idea. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, we could say, you know, like a whole lot about this, but like, what is, well, well, yeah, what we have been saying, what, is, what is a self? Who is a self? And huge in pop culture, clinical culture to talk about, like getting in touch with your true self, with your authentic self. And it comes out in a whole, and usually how they get talked about is, well, I want to connect with my true self, my authentic self. So I'm going to get a new job. I'm going to start a new career. I'm going to do pick a line of work that's more fun for me. Or I'm going to get out of this relationship I don't like and into one that I do like. Or I want to, you know, start having sex in this particular way instead of this other way or or something, something. And it's very external based, very activity based. And, you know, I, I remember being challenged with that, like in, in, in my developing years as I was, you know, figuring out what to do with, you know, sex, sexuality and everything. And they're like, but like, but that, that, that's not like who you are and like who you are is Christ. And I was like, well, something about that feels true, but I don't completely know how to talk about that because there's, I don't know, it was just like a really complex thing. But but now, yeah, now I feel like I have more language to talk about how like my true self is that inner self. My, my you know, the authentic, the authentic me is the me when I'm calm, the me when I'm curious, the me when I'm being the image of God. And, and that takes unblending from all of these other parts and passions and unblending from the defensiveness and unblending from the anger. And, you know, clinically we could talk about some, some mechanics and I want to talk about that a bit, but like theologically, I think it has a sense of knowing, knowing who I am in Christ, knowing who Christ is, knowing my, you know, salvific trajectory as, as being good, as being union toward Christ, freedom from death. If I can get into that mode, then, then, then that's me. That that's the real me. All of the other stuff is, is parts and, uh, and I still have to own those and take responsibility for those because that's 
that's the core self that is able to handle and take responsibility and repent and ask forgiveness and be humble. Uh, yeah, having that having that trajectory is important. What I'd like to maybe wrap with is maybe some some practical ideas. You know, hopefully the listener is uh, interested in cultivating this this inner life, this inner stillness, and you know, furthering their own journey of you know spiritual disciplines, recovery work, just like inner growth. You know, so, so we talked about this process of like unblending or metacognition and and everything. Uh, and there's a whole lot of tools and approaches to this that uh, that are out there. But I wonder, Christian, if you could talk a little bit about some of your go-to ways that you either practice or teach about or work with people for how to do that unblending work. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, kind of, kind of in you know in uh, int- like in, as an introduction to maybe someone like the actual like clinical practice that I. I mean, like you said, there's so many, there's so many resources that are, that are out there. I mean, you know, Dick Schwartz's new book, No Bad Parts is fantastic. And it's got all these different exercises in it that are really helpful. Same with Jenna, Jenna Ramirez. I just can't do it. Yeah. It's Jenna Ramirez. Yeah. It's fantastic. That some great, just some great exercises in there. There's another book called Boundaries for, for Your Soul by Allison Cook and Kimberly Smith. Like that, the, those things are just really good resources, I think, to have. But for me, again, like I think where it kind of, you know, where IFS and theology and pastoral care and counseling and all of it, like it really, they they come together so well. And, and I think I see it most clearly, for example, and I'll introduce it kind of in, you know, different ministerial settings, but also with some of my Christian uh, clients as well, uh, really is in the story of of John in John 8 where Jesus encounters the woman who's caught in adultery. And to me, it's this perfect kind of narrative of IFS playing out in real time um, externally. It's not just this kind of like, you know, internal thing. But what you see is you've got the kind of the, the, core, the core self, the core image of God present there, right? Jesus. There's this firefighting part, the adulterer, who's brought to task by these, by these managerial Pharisees, right? who are so extreme that they bring her before Jesus and they want to kill her, right? So they're like, you know what the best way for us to deal with the sin of adultery is? Murder. That's a really great way for us to, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, do this thing. We'll just kill her. Yeah, exactly. And so what, what's amazing, though, is what you see, what happens, right, is they're, they're so, I mean, the Pharisees, we, we often, I think, demonize them kind of in our minds, but they actually were really good guys. Like, everyone really looked up to them. They really you know, deeply wanted to like do what was right. And yeah, I'm sure there were like places of like corruption and love of power and love of money, et cetera. However, like at the end of the day, like they really were just trying, you know, they were, they were blended with their own spiritualizing parts. And so they come before Jesus and they say, you know, this woman was caught in adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone someone like this, but what do you say? Right. And Jesus, this it's like one of the, it's just one of the most hilarious moments in, in all of scripture, right? Like, he like looks at them and then he just starts writing in the sand. Like he doesn't even give them a response right away. Right. He, I mean, you can, there's some like additions that say, right. There are some parts that say like he was writing their sins down, whatever, whatever. But either way, I don't know that really matters all that much. What that communicates to me is Jesus saying like, okay, like I'm not going to get wrapped up into your, your thing. I'm going to maintain my kind of calm. I'm going to maintain my sense of connection to this whole thing. And then he takes a moment and he has this beautifully creative response, 
right? That's not like, oh, come on, guys, like, don't worry about the law of Moses and whatever, whatever. He's like, okay, like, let him who's without sin cast the first stone, right? Doesn't he, so he actually relaxes the spiritualizing parts, the Pharisees, by honoring what they're coming with. He's not just like, you guys are so mean. I can't believe you would want to kill her. He's like totally honoring what they're trying to do. They're trying to uphold the law of Moses. He's like, all right, great. So if you, if you want to do this, let's do it the right way, right? It's very creative <laughs> and also kind of courageous because like, who knows? Maybe one of them will be like, yeah, no, I'm definitely one of those ones. Um, but by honoring what they came with, with their intention, he was able to get them to relax enough to see, oh my gosh, like here we are. We're so upset about this adulterous woman that we want to commit murder. And like, really, like, are there things probably that we violated in the law of Moses that we could be stoned for? Probably. So like, maybe, okay, all right, Jesus, you deal with her. And so then finally, when they all leave, right, Jesus goes back to his writing in the sand. He's left alone with this adulterous woman. He, he turns to her and he, and he says, woman, which is really not a great translation, because when we hear that, we hear like, woman, go make me a sandwich, right? But like, the, like the Greek word there, like gine, is, I think is how you say it. I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, is actually a very like, uh, respectful term. So it, it, it probably is more accurately translated something like madam rather than, than woman. So here, here he is, right, calling her madam. And the only other place that, or only other places that Jesus uses this word, there's two other places, is one when he meets the woman at the well in John 4. He calls her the same term, madam. And then the other one is with his own virgin mother. So the three people in scripture that he calls this very respectful, endearing term are two adulteresses and his virgin mom. That should give us like a moment of going like, what is going on with this guy, right? Like there's something going on with how Jesus is treating these people because we, we love to look at the, and sometimes I'll even ask my clients, like, do you know what Jesus says to her? What's the first thing Jesus says to her? And they say, go and sin no more. That's the part that we love to hear because our spiritualizing parts are like, that's why they brought her to kill her, right? Like we got to kill this adulterous woman inside of us. But really, it's, that's not what happens. It's the first thing he says is, woman, where, where, where are they? So he gives her this term, of, he treats her with this respect. And again, one would need to wonder, why would some woman in first century Palestine feel the need to commit adultery? I mean, for me, I think like, well, you know, single women on their own lack protection. There's probably some level of shame that goes along with that, right? Like, I mean, you think about how uh, women without children are are regarded in in the scriptures. There's like there's a lot of shame that goes along with this, and and probably just on a human emotional level, not even on a sociological one. Like we we all are we all want some connection. We all want to be seen and and loved and cared for. So in this first moment, what happens is that Jesus gives her that some sort of dignity, some respect, right? Lifts her up to some position of honor, right? Dispelling dispelling the shame. But even before that, he protects her. He doesn't let them stone her. So he gives her these, this dignity, this protection, lifts her from her shame. And he also is the only person in the story to talk to her. He says, you, right? Like, who, like, like no, neither do I condemn you. So there is this really like loving connection that happens there. And only then when Jesus has protected her, given her dignity and connected with her, the things that probably drove her into adultery in the first place, the lack of those things. Only then does he say, now go and sin no more. But my feeling on that is that it's not even like a, like, now you better, like, you know, I'm making a list and checking it twice, so you better be good out there. It's much more about, like, now, look, like, now you're free. You're free to not sin anymore. Now, like, because I mean, honestly, this is what's really interesting is that 
that's that story is omitted from the very early manuscripts of John. Like if you look in early manuscripts of John, that story is not there. But there is this idea that maybe it was reinserted because like, first of all, people were maybe a little scandalized by it. That Like Jesus, after such a grievous sin, would only say something like, okay, like don't do it again. You know, that there wasn't more harsh words for this woman, but it was reinserted or put in or whatever included in some like versions of Luke and some versions of John to show just the beauty of Jesus's person, the beauty of his ministerial action in the lives of people. And I think if we can understand that that's like the approach that Jesus himself takes, then that opens us up to all new kinds of possibility. And so one of the things that I'll do is there's this, you know, in clinical practice to kind of, you know, square the circle or circle the square. I'm never sure what I'm doing to which shape, but there's this icon, uh, fourth century icon um, called Christ and his friend. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful icons to me. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's Jesus with his arm around St. Minas. And uh, they're both just like looking forward, eyes wide open. And it's really, really beautiful um, where he's just standing there, Jesus, with his arm around St. Minas. And I, I say like, this is the icon, the tableau, the portrait, whatever we want to call it, of the, of the reality of what is going on inside of your soul all the time. This is always what is happening. This is never not happening. He's never stepped away. And the thing that he's doing is you can almost, and sometimes I'll even, I'll do this with my clients as I'll have it. And then we've, once we've identified their parts, we will put like a little label on it that says like sexually acting out part and like, just sit with it and let that image be there. Right. Like my sexually, this is what he's doing with my sexually acting out part. He's loving it. He's there with it. And like, just going through like some different kind of like mindfulness, like what do you notice happening inside of you? as like you contemplate this reality that this is happening within you. Can you find that sexually acting out part of yourself and relate to it the same way with some compassion, with some curiosity, with some connection, right? Instead of all the shame that you're giving, like if if he's not giving it shame, then like maybe we can ask that critic part of you just to give you some space for a little bit so that you can join Jesus inside with the sexually acting out part of you that you're so ashamed of or that this part of you is so ashamed of, really you know? Yeah. So I think that there's, there is some really like visual way that we can, can do that. I mean, again, as Orthodox, right? Like th- this is a, this is a fundamental thing that we um, adhere to is, is the, the essential character of bodily worship, you know, and using like our senses to, to do, to have our souls shaped. So I think that these kinds of practices can be, can be really useful to kind of open up the soul in, in new ways, you know? I really love that, uh, which I, I looked up, I looked up that icon because Google is amazing sometimes. And it's this, this image. It's gorgeous. Of, yeah. And just this idea of, you know, Christ, not as, not as my, my father or parent figure, not as my king, not even as, as savior, although he is, you know, all of those things, but, but Christ, Christ can be my friend. And there, there can be that, closeness um yeah you know, i mean keep fine keep the reference but like there there's this closeness there's this affection there and and if we are becoming unified with him and being co-creators co-healers with him then like the same way that he has reached his arm around the whole human race he's reached around you me specifically you specifically then i can then look within myself and being in his image being resurrected already by 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 his 
base pair, I can do that to my own individual parts. And, and that's where, that's where the healing is. And yes, that's just super beautiful. And then if we can do that with ourselves, right, then we won't need to like dump all over other people's parts. Right. You know, which is often, I think, kind of like what we, what we do, you know, and I think sadly, this is what Christians are most kind of rightly critiqued for is like wanting to tell other people what to do all the time. Yeah, I've, I've seen that happen a couple of times. So <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not the best. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to call it there. Not for any lack of really great things to, to be looking at, but, uh, or not even because I'm tired of this, because this is fun, but probably thinking uh, we should dose it so that people have time to like think and meditate on the things. Christian, where could a person find you in the world, online, et cetera, if they wanted to dialogue with you more about any of this stuff? Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't really have uh, a website, like I said, but you are free uh, to reach out to me by email at christian.gonzalez.mft at gmail.com. It's G-O-N-Z-A-L. Um, and Christian is spelt, you know, the way that you would imagine it in the song of being a C, being a C-H, being a C-H-R-E-S-P-I-A-N. <laughs> oh, you are a former youth group kid. <laughs> yeah, dude, for sure. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I uh, you can even reach out to me too. Um, I'd be happy to receive texts or phone calls. You can call me at 714-696-8724. That is not my personal number, but my professional number. So I'm feel free to give that away on the interwebs. But you can also uh, find some of my other work with the GOA um, or the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese. Um, we've got a podcast called Pop Culture Coffee Hour where we talk about uh, culture and music and movies and all things theologically related. That's been a pretty fun one. Um, and I've got a handful of other podcasts that live in the past that you could probably find on the iTunes or an Apple Podcasts thing. I can't even remember what it's called. Some of them are probably available on Spotify as well. Yeah, there's all kinds of places that I'll, I'll pop up if you search Christian Gonzalez and Y2AM. Y2AM, which, what is Y2AM? It stands for Youth and Young Adult Ministries. So it's two Ys, Youth, Young, Adult uh-huh. Ministries. Gotcha, so gotcha. We got very cool, instead of calling it, you know, YM, um, which would have been very close to YWAM. Um, we, uh, went with Y2AM. Right. <laughs> That's much catchier. And the two is an exponent. So that makes us even cooler. That does make it cool because now we have infused ministry with a little bit of math and that's maybe as far as we'll go with that. Mm-hmm. But, all right, cool. That is amazing. And yes, uh, having been a, a longtime fan of pop culture coffee hour, uh, I'd highly recommend it. It's, it's delightful and that's a great place to get all of your movie info. And books and other music. Yeah, thank you for listening <laughs> to it. Of course, of course. It's great. Christian, thank you so much for spending a morning with me and talking about some really cool clinical concepts and wonderful spiritual precepts. And yes, my my parts are happy and content and myself is flowing with delight. So <laughs> thank you. Yes. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This was really uh, a blast and, and really a, a privilege and an honor. Cool. Okay, we'll do it again. Thank you for joining me in today's conversation. My name is Reese Basimio. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian and a clinical counselor with specialties in substance use, compulsive behaviors, sexuality, and trauma. You can reach me through newpatterncounseling.com. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Theme music is by Titus Lockard. 
Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast from all your favorite platforms. Please also consider showing your support of this work through contributing dollars through the podcast page at patreon.com slash outer circle. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.